Again, reading and preaching out of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Hear now the very word of God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, And to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that a light has shone in the darkness. We thank you that... There is a tremendous reason to be full of joy and gladness and to be rejoicing before you this day, that you have taken the yoke and the rod away from us and that you have brought forth to us by way of a child and by way of a king, a government that will bring peace forevermore. Help us, Father, to believe this, to trust this king and to follow after him, to take refuge in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like me, this time of the year is very busy and there's a lot of things going on and lots of scheduled things and lots of disappointment of scheduled things because of sickness and conflict of difficulties of getting all the schedules to work out or what have you. There's things to be excited about and to celebrate and there's things to be disappointed about. But during this time, it should be continually clear for us by the names of the holidays that we're celebrating, that we should be thankful. And it's usually during this time that we're often maybe more dissatisfied because we're hoping to get things to work out a certain way, and it's not working. But then even now, as we've entered into the Christmas season, we should be reminded by the name of the particular time of celebration that it is centered in Christ. And it's hard for me, even as I put this sermon together, for me to, as I'm reading these words about joy and rejoicing and gladness, as I'm wrestling with the passage and wrestling with the calling to being able to present to you the sermon today, I was all just torn up with frustration and disappointment at my weaknesses of not being able to think clearly 
Forgetting the very purposes of what we're celebrating. It is not the strength of ourselves that we are celebrating. It is the fact that Jesus Christ has come. That there was a longing one day of God's people waiting to see the fulfillment of the promises. There was a silence waiting for there to be a light shown in the darkness. And so for us to let our minds go back to darkness or confusion is a, beyond just being silly. As I was complaining and whining this morning, even at the breakfast table, of having a hard time focusing on this particular passage because of all the blustery things going on in my life, I likened the situation that we are in as a culture, like going to a birthday party and forgetting who was the main person that we're celebrating. Mac pointed out that he read a Charlie Brown cartoon, and it says it really well. It's actually an old cartoon of Charlie Brown and Sherman. I didn't even know there was a character named Sherman, but there was a, name, there was a character named Sherman. And they're walking out of a house, and, it says, and Charlie Brown says, wasn't that a swell birthday party? And Sherman says, it sure was. I got into six fights. And then Charlie Brown responds, I tripped at least four girls. And then Sherman says, by the way, did you ever find out whose birthday it was? That often in these times of celebration that what we find to be fun and celebrate completely ignores the very person that we're supposed to be celebrating. And as we go into this Advent season, I want to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ to have a joyous time, to be encouraged at the coming of the Lord. But just as we did in the baptism commitment to one another, I also want to admonish you not to forget about Jesus Christ and what he would desire. Can you imagine going to a birthday party and you wanted to play certain games, but nobody ever asked the person that we're celebrating, what kind of game did you want to play? And we all thought about the snacks and we ate the snacks and food and we never cared about what was being served that was one of the favorites of the person, but didn't actually forget the person that we're celebrating. That Charlie Brown cartoon, I think, is probably much more of a good analogy of our culture today when we consider not just the celebration of Christmas, but the celebration each Lord's Day as we come to worship Him. As I set out to think of an Advent sermon series, this is kind of an in-between sermon series. We just finished Acts last Sunday, and we anticipate starting Hebrews in January. It's difficult for me because I, I like to have the flow. When you have a book that you're going through, you're tied to that, and so you just work with it. But Advent passages are kind of here and there, and there's a variety of different ones, and you're not going through a particular book, and it becomes somewhat topical. So it is somewhat challenging for me to be able to put this kind of preaching together after being directly expositorial through a passage. But I thought it would be good to to look at different Advent passages that we're very familiar with, but to look at them in light of why did Jesus come? I mean, it's that's what we're celebrating right now is the advent of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so since it's his party, since it's his purposes, 
I think we should go to his word and say, why did you come? Why are we celebrating? What should we be celebrating when we are having all of these parties and these get-togethers and food and expenditures? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Well, Isaiah 9 is a particular passage that tells us what is going to happen. And inside of that, it tells us why it is happening. But this particular sermon series, I want to take these Advent passages and go through the law of God. Now, I have not found a lot of sermon series that goes through the Ten Commandments as an Advent sermon series. So it makes it even harder for me to think that I could try to pull this off. But I feel fairly confident that this is what Jesus would want at his particular birthday party. Because when we think about Jesus' coming, he tells us specifically why he came came in Matthew chapter 5. He says in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come... Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The amazing thing about Jesus' birthday party is that he actually comes to us. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to mankind and took on flesh. We are those who are called to worship him, and he ultimately desires for us to be brought to the Father. But first, the party that starts with him coming to us. So if you can imagine him showing up on our doorstep, and we say, why are you here? He tells us, I am not here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That his advent is to ultimately fulfill the law so that we can be drawn near to him. And so we should be thinking about the law as we go into a time of anticipation of the Lord. It says in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's always fun to have Christmas during this time of the year because we have more darkness, but we love lights. And so we often celebrate by putting lights everywhere. We see the contrast between the darkness and the light, and it makes us feel encouraged and good. That's why we light things up. So the same thing for us should occur. We, when we consider our inability to keep the law of God, We look at Jesus who came to fulfill the law of God, and that light shines in our darkness. It contrasts our failure, and it gives us hope because we're left without Christ. We are left separated from God, and we are left in nothing but darkness. Jesus came to bring that light. 
He didn't come to turn off the light or to ignore the light, but to fulfill the light. In the response that we have in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Then again, they rejoiced before you, and with joy at the, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divided the spoil. When we consider the gift that we have with this light, we should have joy. Well, how can we have joy if we, one, forget the person of Jesus Christ, but we also forget the purpose of Jesus Christ in his coming? So I encourage you, and I hope that you don't think, wow, this is a very stark thing. Charles is going to go through the Ten Commandments for an Advent sermon series. No, it is my prayer and it is my hope that I will point out the light that Jesus brings by bringing fulfillment and the obedience to his Father. We will go through two commandments a Sunday all the way up to Christmas Day to finish out all Ten Commandments. So my first question for you today, and I'm, I'm going to quiz you, and I'm going to try to do this quickly because we've already got a, a slow start. What is the first commandment of God? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So we'll talk about that today. Does anybody know the second commandment? Don't be whispering the answers to people. <laughs> what is the second commandment? Give me just the essence of it. You don't have to quote it verbatim. Don't kneel before idols. Is there any more than that? It's a little beefier than that. The first commandment's fairly short, but the second one's got a little bit more beef to it. Don't make images. And don't and don't don't kneel to them. So don't worship them. Not bow down to them. What else? Also, I can't remember. Oh, sorry. Somebody also, or it also mentions. I don't remember the exact quote, but it talks about like the curses on generations, but then also the blessings of generations. That's right. Most people forget the second part of the second commandment. And it's really kind of the sad part because when we're left with the first one, it's easy for our mind to just immediately think, I have not any graven images of anything in heaven above or on the earth or on below the earth, and I haven't bowed down to any particular statues. I haven't done any of that. I'm good. But the commandment, it goes much further than that. And so when we think about Jesus coming, when we think about the fact that he would tell us in his word not to make images in what we see given to us in the confessions of faith, both in the Westminster and the London Baptist, is that it's also concerning our imaginations. It's things that we invent in our mind that we associate with God that is not consistent with the creator, but consistent with the creation. It's a much deeper passage than that, but even beyond that, we miss what God calls in the admonition, which is really defining for us what is going on in the first part. He tells us that when we do not obey God in that kind of faithful worship, that he will visit the iniquity of the, of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. And that's a pretty grim thing to hear. 
that when we do not worship God rightly, that it affects the third and fourth generation, that there is a judgment that comes from that just by the natural coming of things, that it affects our children, that it encompasses our children. But then there's the blessing, it says, but the steadfast love is for those who love him in what else? And keep his commandments. There's the promise of judgment, but also the promise of blessing that is placed upon children of those who worship. And so when we think about the coming of the Messiah, and we think about those two particular commandments, especially in light of this, may it be that we think about how Jesus brings hope to both of those commands. That he actually brings open doors for us. That this is no longer a separation command. That this is no longer a yoke. As even Paul says, that the law is like a yoke to those when it is absent of Jesus Christ. When we consider the law, he actually admonishes the Pharisees in in the book of Acts. It records him admonishing the Pharisees that when they are just constantly focused on the law, but apart from Christ... The law becomes a yoke of burden. It is a staff, like we see here in verse 4, a staff on our shoulder. It is a rod of oppression for us. And Satan uses it as a rod of oppression for us. When we are reminded of our sinfulness and when we are absent from Christ, Satan can make highlight of that for us, saying, you are not worth the presence of God's light. You are not worth being near the Messiah. And he has a truth inside of what he is saying. But the coming and the advent of the, of the Lord is that he comes to fulfill that law for us. And so we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to now see that in verse 5, that every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle of Tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That we are now not only able to look at the law in the light of Jesus Christ, we're able to look at life in the light of Jesus Christ, that death itself will be burned up as fuel for the fire. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Inside of this particular passage itself, we see that Jesus, that this Messiah, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The very first thing that we should understand about the fulfillment of God with the law of God is that he is God. There is no way to celebrate Christmas and not believe in the deity of of Jesus Christ. There are plenty of churches today, or places that call themselves churches today, that that is an unnecessary component to their doctrine of faith that Jesus is God. That they like the teachings, they like the idea of what they've shaped God or Jesus to be as one who is one who is kind and gracious and who is tolerant of people. But they do not want to accept that he is God. Jesus comes and fulfills the law by primarily being God is with us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He accomplishes the first commandment by first being God and bringing God to us by being God with us. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, it tells us in the very beginning that this promise is going to happen. God tells Moses, he says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. It will take God doing this. Just as we baptized Alora this morning, there's nothing she did to bring that promise upon herself. God is the one who saves his people. He will take people to be his people. He will make himself the God of others by saving them from the burdens that the law highlights when we see that we are those who are in sin. As it said in Matthew chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. In Romans chapter 10 verse 4, I actually very rarely do I lean toward the NIV over the ESV, but I really appreciate this verse and how the NIV says it. it says, Christ is the accumulation of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Most other translations says that Christ is the end of the law. And it's a, it's a fine English translation, but we typically think about that it's the abolishment of the law. And we're like, wait a minute, this contrasts what Jesus actually said, that he did not come to abolish it. No, he is the accumulation of the law. It means that he fulfills the law in his fullness. If you look at the Greek word, it is not talking about that it's no longer applicable, but it means that it completes it. <laughs> He completes the law of God for us. It is the primary purpose of our celebration of Christmas is that he completes the law. He gives us access to the Father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who said, let, shine, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This light that is being shown in the darkness is Jesus Christ himself being shown into our hearts, and it is the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ. How do we know who Jesus Christ is if we don't know the character of God? What teaches us the character of God Better than his word in his law. So we celebrate the advent of Jesus Christ by looking at the law and how he fulfills it. Yes, without Jesus Christ, when we look at the law of God, it becomes a burden to us. It is condemnation to us. It actually brings us down like a weight of a yoke, like a rod of an oppressor. But Jesus comes to fulfill it, to lift that off of us by being the fulfillment of it. We see that Jesus fulfills this in his own temptation. 
In Luke chapter 4, then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, In him only shall you serve. Here we see this combination of the first and second commandment being proclaimed by Jesus Christ in light of the temptation of of Satan. Satan says that you will have all the authority. I can give you this authority. And God had granted Satan to have a measure of authority in the world. And he says, if you would just bow down to me, you will be able to have authority. You will be able to have glory. But you must bow down to me. This should cause us to at least have caution that there is real authority out there. There is real glory to be had. That it's easy to be deceived. If Satan felt like he had the audacity to actually go before Jesus Christ and to tempt him with glory, to tempt him with authority, do you not think that we as a church will be tempted, especially in this season, but every Lord's Day and every day of our life, to take the things that God has created and to reshape it in such a way that we're actually worshiping and serving Satan instead. That when it gets twisted so much, that it is possible what we think is celebrating Christ is actually celebrating Satan. Jesus responds to that by reminding him that it is God's worship that he is there to focus on, which blows our mind because he is God, but he is there to submit himself in obedience to his specific calling, to the things that the law and the prophets had proclaimed. He was there to fulfill those things. That it's not just about the glory. It's not just about the authority. It's not just about the celebration or the nostalgia or how you feel when you come to worship or how you feel when you're dealing with your spouse or how you feel when you're having to obey your parents or how you feel when you're trying to raise your children or how you feel when you're trying to do your work. We try to redefine so many things of what God has called us to do to be based upon are we being successful and able to do what we want to do, authority, and are we feeling good about it, which is our glory. And often we so twist and turn those things, including Christmas, it is likely that many of us are worshiping Satan in how we are doing these things. This should at least cause us caution. And have us to take evaluation are the things that we are doing consistent with what the very one that we're celebrating has commanded. Further in that same passage, it says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against the stone." Now here, Satan, he's like, okay, yeah, we can talk about the word of God. The word of God says that he will command angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up. So you can jump off of a pinnacle and he'll do these things. Now that's enticing. 
We can go to chapter and verse and say, well, the Bible says this is okay, so therefore I can celebrate in my own way. I can do this particular thing. But we know that Satan is really good at twisting God's words. He did it from the very beginning. And Jesus answered it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This particular account of Jesus' temptation is actually the account of his fulfillment of obedience to the law. And inside of that, we must remember that this is the same kind of temptations that will come our way. So when we are fighting the temptations of Satan, we should be reminded to go the same route that Jesus did by namely here in this particular response to be focusing faithfully on the worship of Jesus Christ. The second command is all about worship. Every confession of faith that's worth its weight in ink is, or more is that it is about the worship of God. It's not just about the bowing down of images. We can narrow down and try to trim that out, but when we read the second half of that commandment, we realize that it's an encompassing of how we worship and serve the Lord. It's all-encompassing to our worship to the Lord. So should worship be something we take seriously? If Satan is going to tempt Jesus about worship, we should take it very seriously. And Jesus teaches us that there is a specific way here in his own temptation that we can't just assume upon God that, you know what, I'm going to do this for his glory. I'm going to jump off this pinnacle and do something foolish. It says that that is testing the Lord. It tells us to take great caution in the very specific things that God desires for his own worship. So if we're going to celebrate Jesus and his coming, we better do it the way he wants to do it. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, that this is not something that we can conjure up ourselves this is something that the Lord has to bring the light in. I can't get you know, articulate or loud or even scream and get you to understand it. It must be the Lord doing this. It is why we celebrate. And throughout all of these particular passages, I want you to remember three particular things about his coming. That Jesus' coming is to fulfill, to fulfill the law of God. That Jesus' coming is to enable and to equip his people. He doesn't just come and accomplish it. His power and his life and his death and his resurrection and reign actually enables us to be able to grasp these truths. That is why the law is such a leveler of us. Because it reminds us that we are totally incapable. That's why I love the baptism of an infant child. is because there's nothing there but grace being displayed. So yes, Jesus' coming is to enable and equip. It's the second point. It says that we love because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, 19. But it says in response in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He enables us and he expects from us that, yes, we can't love unless he loves us. Unless the light comes into our darkness, we are incapable of doing anything. But Jesus says, then if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. That's what we see there in the second commandment. It says that for those who love me and keep my commandments. It's parallel to those who have his steadfast love. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure this day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? When we think about Jesus coming, it should first bring about some level of fear to us. But the great thing is, continuing in that passage, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. When Jesus comes... His work refines his people. His work enables his people to be able to be pleasing to the Lord. He will purify us, and he is purifying us now. That was the encouraging thing about that confession of faith, is that when we look at it, we can first be very disheartened and go, oh man, another week, and I botched it. I completely botched it, and I've been sinful. I've been arrogant, I've been prideful, I've been angry, I've been bitter, I've been lazy. I mean, we could come in every week and say that, but we should be able to start seeing that if we are loving him, it is because he is purifying us. Even the fact that we would come lamenting and repenting is a sign of that purification, that we are no longer content and left in the hardness of our heart that it actually saddens us when we sin, is a blessing from God. The next chapter in, verse, next chapter in Malachi, verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. In the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This Advent promise of Elijah, which is actually a promise of John the Baptist coming and preparing the way for the one who is coming, the Messiah, that this preparation for the Messiah, that this proclamation of the coming of the Messiah will begin the work of turning our hearts. Remember what the second commandment says, that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers of those who hate me to the third and fourth generation. We see that our wicked worship 
our satanic worship of taking every imagination and everything that he has created and reshaping it for our own self-worship has brought damnation to us. But Jesus is coming, that his coming, his advent coming and expectation that even the work and preparation for that will begin to turn our hearts that the father's hearts will go to their children and their children to their fathers, that they will be bound together in faithful and righteous worship of the Lord that will remove from us the coming decree of utter destruction. It will remove from us the promise of the visiting of the iniquity to the third and fourth generations. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this continuation of how this this worship and service of the Lord is so interwoven with our children. It says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. I mean, you can pretty much see that that is our ultimate calling is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul and with all of our might. We see that again in the second commandment that what God truly wants is not certain postures of worship and all these things that ultimately that in the commands that he gives us in his word to worship him, it is to draw forth a love of him, a service of him. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 echoes that, and it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He desires that our hearts would be changed. And then he says right after that, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You will teach your children continually. What? The law of God. The ways of the Lord. Because you love him. Luke, Sabrina, you just promised before this congregation that that's what you will do. If you love your children, if you love the Lord, you will love your children by diligently teaching them everything the Lord has commanded. The Great Commission is not to just make converts that are happy to not go to hell. The Great Commission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to teach them what? Everything that Jesus has commanded. So our Christmas celebration should be full of the law of God Realizing that now because he has come, we have access to being obedient to God. That we can actually put forth sacrifices of obedience before the Lord that is pleasing and acceptable. And we should see in the second command that it should start with our worship. When we think about Moses and we read the prayer passage this morning of the song of Moses, what was the primary purpose of the salvation of God's people from the slavery of the Egyptians? What was the first agenda action item for the God's people? To worship the Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, today there is a debate amongst churches because the calendar year has Christmas on Sunday, whether they should be having church on Sunday. People are trying to decide. This might mess up family traditions if we go ahead and have church on Sunday. So maybe we should cancel church on Sunday so that we can have Christmas. It makes that Charlie Brown cartoon way too real. That it's Christmas. We know at least on a minimum level we go and worship him on the Lord's Day with his people. But it's become such a thing that when we have a little bit of COVID, people are like, you know what? I can do this at home. You know what? I don't even have to do it. It's Christmas. We've got to have Christmas. How many people today, because of all of the hubbub of Thanksgiving and all of the hubbub of shopping on Friday and Saturday to get all the best deals, said, you know what? Man, I am just so wiped out. I can't make it to church today. But we go from Thanksgiving to celebrating Christmas without even a bump in the road, without even thinking about our call. The second commandment says in Westminster Larger Catechism, what are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, the observing, the keeping, pure and entire, all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. People say, well, you know, I can worship him in, in my own way. I know God's heart. And those are the scariest words that any Christian could ever have coming out of their mouth is I know God's heart and he wouldn't require. You better be very careful <laughs> that those words are very closely associated with what is instituted in his word, continuing particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ. The reading, the preaching, and the hearing of the word, the administration, the receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting and swearing by the name of God and vowing unto him, and also the disapproving and detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. Yeah, it's a big mouthful there, but it, it all comes from the scriptures. Reading the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 13. Preaching the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2. Singing the Bible, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. The Psalms as well as scripture are songs that reflect the development of redemptive history and the birth, life, and death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Praying the Bible. The Father's house is a house of prayer, Matthew 21, 13. And considering and doing the two sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Matthew 28, 19, Acts 2, 38 through 39, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, and Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Aren't you glad I didn't read all those to you today? I'd be happy to give you this list. In fact, I'll send you the article that had all that nicely laid out for me. I mean, we can make it really simple in the shorter catechism. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. <laughs> As for children, as shorter catechism was like, you know, it, it didn't come from his word. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll keep the things that I have said. I like the second London Baptist confession. 
It's a way of saying, when it's talking about the second commandment, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed by the Holy Scriptures. If we're not thinking about the Word of God, if we're not thinking about the law of God and going into the Christmas season, we should be afraid. None of us want to celebrate Satan. None of us want to be worshiping Satan. And we know that the temptation is there because Satan tried to tempt Jesus himself with that. So I'm encouraging you, brothers and sisters, yes, celebrate Christmas. Celebrate it vigorously, but celebrate it faithfully and according to his law and according to his word. Don't walk outside of the birthday party and go, whose birthday was this again? He came as God so that we could have God that we could be with God, that we could worship God. If anything you want to celebrate about the coming of Jesus Christ, celebrate that we get to worship him, that our worship is actually pleasing and acceptable to him. Yes, from us, from human beings, full of sin and vileness. Because of Jesus Christ's light, we are able to come to his table you know, might be worried about, I mean, I'll spray alcohol on my hand before I pass this out so you all don't get germs. But that's nothing compared to the sin that is in my heart. And for your grubby little hearts to feel like you can even take this bread, you must remember what you are here for. It is not just so that you can get a little bit of a snack to try to overcome the long sermon that the preacher gave and maybe chug down some wine so you can calm down a little bit. <laughs> No, it is to bring you to the Lord and to understanding that he has brought light into darkness. He is the image of the invisible God. He didn't just obey the first commandment. He is the first commandment, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent means he is over everything in our lives. His worship means more than everything in our life, or it should. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we so thank you for Jesus Christ.